0: In case ye were wondering, International Talk Like a Pirate Day was started in 1995 by John Bauer, old Chum Bucket, and Mark Summers, Captain Slappy, of Alabama, Oregon. I have not been there yet, but perhaps one of these days we'll sail up the coast and see what treasure lies there. Arr. Well, pops up a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from Brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him, what you got? He said, I'll start off with some talking, and some movie clips, some popcorn, fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundness exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching, and some blind unboxing full-month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contests, and of course you know it's all about games. I said, slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG. The with the other just... ahoy, me hearties! It's International Talk Like a Pirate Day, and if you don't put on your eye patch and put your parrot on your shoulder, you will be walking the plank, yeah. So, before we get into the show, I want to thank you for putting up with me your host, Jason the Pirate, for talking like a pirate this entire episode. Because it is not so easy to listen to me talk like a pirate, and you may not have an endless supply of rum and grog to deaden your senses. This will be a call-in show. In fact, it will be a call-in show dedicated to one caller, the Dread Pirate Daniel.
1: Hey, Jason. Daniel keep calling in about the... Who plays... Borg Borg... You know, it's funny, I bought the book because I started on Questing Beast, and it was so beautiful. I mean, I bought it for this, exactly what you say, it's like an art book. Um, And I have yet to play it, though. I do know people who have, and they enjoy it, but generally the statement I hear is that it's a fun for one-shots and stuff, but probably not something they'd want to play all the time. What I will say about the supplements, though, which is why I'm calling in, is I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I know they have like some design elements and graphics and stuff that are available if you want to develop directly for Morkborg, which is what's kind of helping to spur on these Kickstarters from third parties making supplements that all look amazing. And I did, I think, three Kickstarters for Morkborg, but since I have not played yet, the last couple that I've seen I did not do because I think it might be one of those games I never play or maybe just play once or twice so I'm not going to invest any more in it.
0: Shiver me timbers, it's the Dread Pirate Daniel, with the first of a number of calls. In fact, Daniel has called us so much, he is the only caller this whole episode. But, don't me worry, mateys. If you called and left me a message, I will play it next episode, or else I'll walk the plank. But, let me answer this about Morkborg, the artbook RPG. I think that Daniel isn't wrong. Most people play it, indeed, once, maybe twice, and then they set it aside to look at it. I did not know about the marketing aspect, but that explains why all the third-party products look the same. That is an interesting tactic they have taken, letting people use their art. But it's a smart one, and obviously it has turned out well. I wish them the best. And while I do believe it's played in one-shots and you know, two or three session games, I I just have a hard time believing there are six-month workboard campaigns out there. But I could be wrong. If ye know of such things, just call in, let us know. And now, a word from our sponsor. Why are you listening to this advertisement for RichterCon 2020X? We're here because you're looking for the best of the best of the best. I see. You want to play with the world's greatest GM, the man that ran the first Pathfinder 2 actual play podcast, a podcast so amazing that Paizo ran and hid their heads in the ground because it scared them, knowing that they couldn't live up to its potential. Here is the man himself, Joe Richter, when asked about his DMing style. Here's the deal, I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence, and nobody can hang with my stuff. Uh, You know, I'm just a a big, hairy, American winning machine. If you ain't first, you're last. You know know what I'm talking about? If you think you have what it takes to attend the Iron Eagle of RPG conventions, RichterCon 2020X, sign up today, or else.
1: Hey, Daniel from Aidscape. Uh, calling in, actually, I'm going to cause trouble again, I guess. I'm calling in about Darren's call, about how he didn't, doesn't understand how GMs don't want to hear long backstories. Well, being one of those people, I think I'll, put, I'll explain why. I'll try to anyways. For me, I want to be surprised by the character's backstory on some level. In other words, when I'm running an adventure, I don't want to plan the adventure around characters' backstories. What I'd rather have happened is situations are happening, and then the players tell me, oh, well, my character's backstory is this, this, and this. The kind of has, it goes up in play. Because I feel like that's like how life is, right? We don't get to, our lives aren't planned around our backstory. It's that we pull what we know from our past to make what's happening to us now work. So personally, I don't really want to know because I don't want to use that to influence my adventures. What I would rather do is have the players pull it out when they need to, to kick butt, basically, if that makes any sense. That being said, and more to, I think, What part of at least part of what his point was is that I do like games that give you like random tables and stuff to help create a backstory if you don't have an idea for your character or even to enhance it a little bit. I think that is really, really fun. So I I agree that that's awesome. I was just as a person who doesn't want to know or read the player's character's backstory before we start, uh, that's my reason. So if that makes sense, who knows what anybody else thinks?
0: I know I'm usually the odd man out here. This is why he is the Dread Pirate Daniel and I am not. I think. This is a very interesting call, and if I understand what my mate Daniel is saying, I agree with him. So there are two ways to approach backstories, and this will depend on the captain. That's the MDU and me, Russ, and his crew. That's your player group, and depending what they prefer, will depend which of these versions you use, or you may intermix the two, as I am oft very willing to do. So, pull up a stool. You, you can use one of those barrels. Crew, grab yourself a mug of grog. No, the rum is for the officers. Okay, now let us tell you the story of different GMing styles with backstories. One version is narrative, and the other version is not narrative. These are complicated terms, and I know you are not literate, mateys, but do your best to wrap your mind around them. Are you up there? Do you see anything? No, oh, Captain. Keep an eye out for the fleet. All right, teammates. In a narrative style, what will happen is you will have general broad strokes built. So, For example, in the recent Cyberpunk character creation, we have characters that have ties to booster gangs, groups of scallywags running around the city. In the narrative style, that is all we will do. The player may decide on the specifics of this booster gang, perhaps. They dress up like pirates and they have cybernetic pig legs. Or maybe the player does not even had those details and just knows a booster gang. At some point during the game, they may be in the city and come across the booster gang, and that player will say, these are the groups of scallywags that my character has a connection with, at which point the captain will then incorporate that into the game. Or, perhaps, in the game, the players are on the run, being chased down by the... Royal Navy, and I, I mean the police, and at that point, the player says, this is the neighborhood that the booster gang I am associated with are in. I want to go to them to help hide us, and the GM will say, ah, yes, you can do that. So that is the narrative way to use background in an emergent way that where the player has influence and it surprises the GM. The other way to do it mates is by a firm strong hand controlling that ship. You you grab the wheel and you tie that man's hot hands to the wheel so he can't leave and de- de- be derelict of his duties, you see. But in this method the captain does not allow the players any narrative control and either the, before the game the captain and the player will agree on the specifics of this booster gang, or the captain will make the specifics up on his own and pop it on the player. Oh, this is the booster gang that you're associated with, the Dread Robo Ninjas, and we all know how that goes. So in my humble opinion, I think that backstory probably works a little better the way Daniel's saying it. but. It's not a totally fair comparison because the other way the captain can have control of backstory that makes sense is if you have a backstory that he can incorporate when he's actually writing the adventure, such as if you are on the run from someone, then he can incorporate that in the adventure and you will not be able to rest because every time you start to get comfortable somewhere, that group is showing up, coming after you and for that to happen the captain has to be in control not in emergent play like some sissy story game ah i can't even pull that off i am a fan of story games and i like the idea of the pull push and take where both the captain and the player have input here so i think the best approach is a mix of the two you may not define that booster gang the player may get to define that in play, but the captain will know about you having an enemy and the captain will have control when that enemy appears in the game and may even write it into the sessions. So I think a mixed approach is best here, but I look forward to having calls from all you mates to tell me what you think of backstory and who should have control of it during the game. Okay, I'm going to call in and give my opinion, even though
1: it wasn't asked for. That's pretty much standard for me, because um, you asked Joe, uh, about your whole thief thing with the the running and the doing what your character would do. I think, once again, it's one of those things where when people say that people are jerks for saying that's just what my character would do, that's in situations where you intentionally go out of your way to really no, really no reason to screw over the other players. So in your situation, the one PC was beating the hero, saying run and you had the necklace in order for the, the party to, to complete their mission, you needed to run to complete the mission. You running, whether that's what your character would do or not, was is actually the right thing to do in my mind. It doesn't, you weren't hurting the other players by doing that because they were all making their own decisions. The other players that didn't listen to the hero player, if they stayed, that's on them, they weren't listening. The hero player has decided to stay, so now nobody in the party uh, nobody in the party is going to fault you for doing that because that is the thing that you kind of should do. You're being told to do that. In fact, I would say other player characters that stayed back and fought the shark, unless that somehow is aiding you to get away, were doing what I would say, quote, the wrong thing. And there's real no right or wrong. I'm not judging anybody, but I'm saying if we're, we're talking theoretically here, because that one player is literally sacrificing themselves so everybody else can get away. If other player characters die because they stayed back to help when it was a helpless situation, that just seems like a a waste of characters. Sometimes somebody's going to die. Now, if everybody was like, hold the line, we can beat this thing, and then we can get out of here, and then your character was like, peace, and left everybody, and because of that, they died, now I'd say, hmm, that's not so cool, and maybe it might not have been the, quote, right thing to
0: do. Either way, I think that it's, again, one of those really interesting conversations. Arr, oh, Daniel, I was not trying to hornswoggle you, but I do have to say that all the other players did end up say, staying and assisting in the battle against the were And in fact, they ended up defeating it, more by luck than anything. Joe Richter's character did turn into a wareshark as a result of wounds, but that is a story for another day. So, matey, was I right? to take the treasure and run. I I think in the end, it did not hurt the game. I think in this case, doing what my character would do probably was the right thing narratively and for the game. But at the end of the session, when I sat there and listened to those old salts fight the whereabouts shark, as I had nothing to do because I was out of the action. I had time to pontificate and think. And that is perhaps where this feeling of guilt came from. But enough of the sadness. Let us move on to something more cheery, perhaps something with four colors.
1: It's funny you should mention Marvel Super Heroes
0: when I
1: actually have two boxes of it from when it first came out. Well, maybe not first came out, but I think I got them in like the, well, oh God, I was going to say the early 90s, so maybe it was the second version of it. Um, and when... Sadly, Stan Lee died, I don't know, three or four years ago. Um, I busted it out and ran a couple of games, and people loved it, so we, we played a bunch. I, I agree. I actually do like that system, so you're right. You nailed something that I would really like. The only thing is I did find some weird situations where, like, if your skills were equal, you kind of hit a lot of uh, walls with it. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, and I also think the TSR's Conan system used a similar thing. Huh, maybe that's a system to look into.
0: Are ah, you old sea dog I should have known that you had played Marvel Super Heroes. It is a wonderful game. It's just one of the first RPGs I ever owned, actually. And it is the first one I ever ran. The, for the most part, I think it does stand up. And I think you could take your crew and run a wonderful game of Marvel Super Heroes today. I would change the karma system myself. I think the karma system was a little bit broken. Just like Cyberpunk, it's a game where you have to if you want to use your special resource to modify a die roll, you have to add you have to choose how much of it to add to the die roll before you roll the dice. Nowadays I would I would add it after I rolled the dice. Also, the karma rewards were built around the idyllic conditions for Captain America and Spider-Man. But everybody in the game wanted to play the Punisher and Wolverine. And, of course, karma did not work so well for those characters, or if you want to play a super villain campaign, for example, but all in all, I do think Marvel Superheroes is a wonderful game, and an early example of a game you could use as a universal system. Look out, it's the fleet. fire shots across their bow. I must finish talking to me, matey so before we keelhaul this game and say it is only destined for history. I should say that you can use Marvel Superheroes System to play any genre. Because of superpowers, it has magic. It has ancient technology. It has future technology. It has mutations. It has everything you need. And while it is not perfect to play for all genres, you could use it as a universal system in fact one that predates the vaulted gurps so just saying as far as the action table yes the action table is a great thing and the use of the action table was not only in marvel superheroes mates no it was used in a variety of games at the time marvel superheroes zeb cook's conan game i believe it was zeb cook's also used this table as did which you can still find out there, actually. Is it um, Z-E-R-S, or Zyphers? Z-E-F-E-R-S? I don't know. If you look up Conan Action Table, there's a clone of that game out there with the Conan stripped out of it, of course, because, you know, they would hang you from the yardarm if they knew you were using their IP. But don't hang the jib there, Métis. It is okay. They also did an edition of Gamma World the third edition, I think, I had it, that used the action table. And there were other games, too, that used the action table. Not all from TSR. In fact, a group of TSR creators left to create a, a game company called Pacesetter. Not the one today that has screwed up Kickstarters in the past. I refer you to the Minions and Musings podcast review of when they tried to release an updated version of BX, ...and really screwed the pooch on that project. I understand their adventures are fair to Midland and not so bad. The adventures they've produced since that Kickstarter. But that Kickstarter for the BX Improved Box Set was quite the, the catastrophe. Nevertheless, the original pace setter came out with a game called Chill. And Chill used an action table that worked very well. In fact... Chill may still be the best horror role-playing game that you've never played, and arguably is better than Call of Cthulhu because it draws on the gothic tropes of Hammer Horror as opposed to H.P. Lovecraft, so you don't have to worry about racist tropes. You just have to worry about colonial ones. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Oh, I guess that's not so good. Anyhow, there are a whole series of games, such as Time Master, one of the great time traveling rpgs we've had a number of wonderful adventures so action tables have been with us for a long time but marvel superheroes may have been the progenitor of that sort of thing and i do think it works very well ah me hearties before i go move on to the next call the game i am thinking of of course that is the retro clone of tsr's conan game is called Zeb's fantasy role-playing system. And I have included a link to that retro clone in the show notes. So do not worry, mateys. Now let's just move on to the Dread Pirate Daniels next call. Actually, before we move on to the Dread Pirate Daniels next set of calls, I should give you some context. That Scallywag Garland Walker from Live from Pelham's Wasteland had called in and talked about spoilers. He and Joe Richter of Hindsightless believe that spoilers are not a bad thing, and it's okay to spoil movies and books before someone reads them. I disagree. In my personal opinion, which of course is the correct one, you do not want to be spoiled before you read a book or watch a movie or TV show. You should watch it as a blank slate. And once you've watched it once, then you can go back and rewatch it many times to enjoy the intricacies and enjoy the build-up and see how they built the plot up to that point, to when they surprised you with a twist ending or or a shocking plot reveal. I feel you should not be spoiled, but I also feel that good movies, good TV shows, good books can be reread multiple times after you know the spoiler and you will enjoy them all the more. But if you know the spoiler ahead of time, it steals that chance to enjoy it the first time, which should be something that will send someone down to Davy Jones's locker.
1: Hey there, uh, calling in about Arlen's call. And actually, I just started listening to your response. and I think we're similar here. But um, although I kind of uh, I agree with Arlen, although I don't feel the same way, I guess is the way I say it. I don't necessarily agree with the, the disposable part, but. I do agree with the hardcore idea of you only see something the first time once. And I think the first time you see something, it should affect you in some way that makes you want to come back and watch it again. And if I know the end, I probably, especially if it's spoiled to me by somebody who doesn't actually spoil it in a good way, right? Like you could reveal the thing that you were talking about with Star Wars and you could reveal it in a crappy way and it make me not want to watch the movie. Or you could reveal it in an awesome way that would make me go, oh, my God, really? Oh, I got to see that. So I guess there's no one answer there, but I'm not a huge fan of spoilers. Um, I like to be surprised, and that's the reason why. But I also rarely watch things more than once, so Arlen's not wrong there. As you said, though, this is a really interesting and great conversation. I actually, I like where he's going, though, with the idea of uh, disposable media and disposable art. And uh, I don't think that he's wrong there. I mean, as somebody who actually works in the media slash arts, (laughs) I can say that, yeah, I mean, most stuff is considered disposable and not meant to be necessarily consumed over and over again, because the reality is, is you don't know when something will be that thing. Usually it takes something special that you can't really put your finger on that will make it become the thing that people want to watch over and over again. You can't create something. Well, I should say, we always create stuff with the idea that that will happen, but the vast majority of things are just not that thing. And honestly, I don't think that... I mean, sometimes you know. Sometimes you create something you're like, oh, yeah. But most times, you don't really know. Yeah, I mean, you're making... Okay, now I listen to your whole thing. You're making a really good point, and I agree 100%. But as usual, I think we're... Well, not always. We don't always agree. I disagree with you on your show. That way you give me top billing. Although you've never given a full Daniel show, which... I mean, I'm just going to say Joe has and BJ has at this point. So, I think even Andy did. Uh, Where's the Daniel show, Jason? Oh, hold on, I'm off topic. Yeah, I I think that uh, you're right. I think there's two, the the thing here is that there's two ways to enjoy uh, a piece of art or media, right? There's that first time like, whoa, that happened. And then there's the... Okay, I know this is gonna happen. Let me get myself ready for me. Let me look like little for little clues as it builds up. And I think unless you've experienced it happening, just hearing the spoiler doesn't kind of work, at least not in my mind. So yeah, I think we're on the same page. Uh and just let me know how many messages I have to send to fully occupy a show. If it's like a
0: while, Daniel is not wrong that some arc out there is disposable, which was also a point of Ireland's. I do not think you have to waste your time watching this disposable art. And instead, you can watch quality programming or read quality books and then revisit them as you want. That's not to say there's nothing, there's anything wrong with watching disposable art or just mindless entertainment. But is it your time more valuable than that? Arr, but let us not get tied down and stuck in the mire here on this topic, mateys, because we need to move on. This next call is related because Daniel is talking about the conversation as it mutated to spoilers in games. Should the captain tell his crew what they are facing? Should he say, you are facing a Wendigo, or should he just describe the Wendigo? And if you are facing a creature, should he tell you the powers up front, or let the characters figure it out with whatever knowledge they may previously possess, either as Pathfinder does it where you can make a roll to find out what the character knows, or the player's player knowledge can be used in that context, because the captain may not always use the stats in the rulebook, although there are some scallywags that would feel that's cheating. I just feel it's fair play to change the stats of a monster. The first time you show it, there's no reason you have to use the creature in the Pathfinder book as opposed to your own creature that you made at home that looks like the creature in the Pathfinder book, but actually has its own unique set of powers that the players would figure out as they go.
1: So, insofar as like the knowing the the creature's abilities and stuff that you're talking about, yeah, I I think although you're not done talking. I I think I tend to agree with you, like, I'd like to discover them as a player while playing. I do think that it's important as a GM to make sure that you telegraph that stuff though, right? So, you know, the stink of evil on something, you know, you slice it with your sword and it just laughs at you if it's tough, whatever. Like, you definitely want to telegraph that so that, you know, it becomes a solvable puzzle (laughs) and not one that becomes frustrating. So. I mean, I'm not a, a board gamer, really, or a video gamer, so I don't know the, the pleasures of knowing all the moves and, oh, this move works on that one. That that stuff that I prefer to learn in play. I don't know if in board games they tell you that up front or as video games. I guess somebody would have to answer that, but I don't know. I prefer to discover it in play. I love the discovery of it. And sometimes you never know what the monster was. I definitely agree with Arlen, though, that sometimes you, <laughs> like with the in the case of the Ape Man, right? Like... You can just say it's an ape man because it. I mean, how else would you do it? You describe it as a ape that looks like a man, right? I mean, I think sometimes a thing's an ape man, or it's a zombie, or I might even use like if a wraith was attacking somebody, I might even say it's a ghost, right? I might use that term even though it's not technically the name of the monster, right? Because uh, it it puts a feeling in somebody's head like what would the people call it? So that's kind of how I go. Uh, but I also look at the level generally of the PCs and their experience, and I might just assume that they would know what something is. And I'll say that. I'll be like, oh, you know what? The bard would know that this is a, uh, a leprechaun because there's lots of stories about leprechauns in the culture. So, you know, you're going to know a little bit about the leprechaun because you're a bard. You can share that or not, you know, and then what I tell them. And I might even tell them things that aren't 100% correct because, again, they're legends. Insofar as the not knowing and the pucker factor conversation... <laughs> uh, pucker factor. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that you need... As Arlen came, seemed to be stating, you need some information to have tactics, but it doesn't mean that you can't learn that information in play, even in the middle of a combat. I think that um, in the situation with the Wraiths, I don't know if you said it in your uh, recap or if Arlen said it, but the the term, uh, you know, rinse and repeat was used after you figured out how to beat the Wraith. So, like, that's it, right? If you knew that you could beat the Wraith with the mirror in the beginning, it, you wouldn't have had that awesome like, moment figuring it out. And I think the same is true with the level drain or the, the constitution train. Once you figure it out, then you're like, okay, we got to change our tactics. I think that creates for fun games. I think if you just know how to beat each creature walking into it, sure, there's still tactics, but for me, that's less fun because I like the, I like learning.
0: Ah, good point, Bucko. But I think for now, we will put a peg in this conversation because there's the possibility that that scallywag Arlen and I are parlaying past one another he has some more calls on the subject that we will go to next episode so we will pick this conversation up there okay well we're definitely going to need some feedback
1: here on how to give me more punk because i will definitely play in a cyberpunk game
0: i played in cyberpunk once
1: a little kind of mini campaign it was really fun i think it was altered actually he started with fate and then i think we switched to altered i don't know he kept switching the system every time we played a different uh uh, episode, but uh, my character was an exotic dancer, and she had some some pretty heavy armaments. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm down. I'm down to be an exotic dancer again. My moves are top-notch.
0: Avast, Dread Pirate Daniel. I cannot give you advice on how to be a punk. Maybe a caller can, but I don't think you need it, because style over substance is a tenant of being a cyberpunk, and I think that sense that fashion is more important than protection is already deep in your DNA, is this next call will tell us.
1: You know, Arlen's calling it about the armor and I'm I'm smiling because, I don't know, maybe my group was weird when we were kids, but we always had, like, if we were playing fighters, they'd always have like a set of leather armor or whatever that they would use when they were in town. Like, when we did town adventures, nobody ever walked into a tavern in full plate. But now, as an adult, when I play Everybody's just constantly in full plate all the time So I guess maybe we were just weird kids We were obsessed with clothes maybe I don't know But yeah, we would never do that We would literally have like separate outfits And weapon uh, caches That we'd use for like town adventures You know, like you'd have like In the dungeon you might have a pole arm or a battle axe, But in town you'd have like a, a short sword on your side Or maybe a dagger and you'd be wearing leather armor Instead of a plate and shield So I don't know Maybe we were weird or maybe other people did that Who knows? Inquiring minds want to
0: know you see, Daniel, by already putting style over substance and fashion over protection, you are already in that mindset. So you can be that exotic stripper in my game any day, Daniel. And in fact, Matees, Daniel has already made his exotic dancer in Cyberpunk 2020, and I look forward to him joining our game. Look for those session reports next month.
1: Hey there, Daniel, i keep listening to your interview with Paul. Um, Thanks for doing that. It's a good interview. Thanks, Paul, for doing it as well. You guys talked about a lot of cool subjects, but I I think pacing is really interesting, and you're kind of talking about that now. It's so hard to know how to pace things. I find that to be one of those things that it just takes uh, table time, I guess is the best way to say it, to know kind of, to have an idea, I should say, of how long things are going to take. I, I, to this day, even with groups I play with a lot, I tend to over-prep. At least ideas. I don't over prep deeply, but I over prep like ideas. That way if things go faster than you think or they go less, then you can always adjust to it. And it's just something that you get used to. Um, and especially with a new group, it's really tricky to know. You know, new group, new new uh, system. Yeah, I mean knowing pacing is gonna be very difficult. So uh, that's pretty awesome that he jumped right in and ran three games. Good
0: for you, Paul. Arr, Daniel, I think that Paul did a wonderful job and was very nice of him to come on the show. And the pacing discussion is interesting because pacing can be very difficult to do in an in-person game, much less online, and even harder if you're not using video. But you have to be able to read your players and know when it is time to move on and when you need to linger. If the players are having fun role-playing amongst themselves, then you shouldn't cut them off just so you can... Rush forward with action at a speed neck pace. Sometimes it's okay for the captain to sit back and let the crew just banter back and forth amongst each other. I I think this is a learned skill, not something you can learn by reading books or by watching actual plays, but I think it's something you learn just by running games. What do you think, Mihatsis? Arr, Mimates, thank you for joining me for this special international Talk Like a Pirate Day. It only comes once every 365 days, so unless Carl runs a pirate game, you will not hear me talk like this again for another whole year. Uh, uh I've been hearing
1: your ads for Brickacon and I wanted to get a ticket, but I would I, w- I want to know if they're still doing the uh the custom speedos this year, uh with uh, Joe's face uh, on the front, and uh, also on the back. If so, uh, I'll take a uh.
0: Extra small. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke put by your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's
1: in the box?
0: What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could see them dead. Bring on the gore.
1: Bring on the gore. I want some more.
0: Bring on the gold Well, your butcher is a dousman and your moil is by the tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the woods, chipper. Don't look away. Cool, eh? Are arising and the world has gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck.